for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? Is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world, a city built on a hill. cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand. Gives it, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory God in heaven, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but will be called great. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I've been, I've been pretty open with you about the fact that I didn't really set out to be a preacher. Given my history in a family of preachers, entering the family business felt cliche and, frankly, kind of boring. I mean, who would voluntarily take that on, right? Remember, my, uh, my dad had gotten out of the ministry when he was still young because he was an introvert and ministry about, is about nothing so much as about people. <laughs> he found it exhausting and frustrating. And as an introvert, I, I, I didn't figure that I would fare any better than my father had. I mean, nuts to that noise, as my college roommate used to say. See, I decided that I wanted a more scholarly, less people-y vocation. I wanted to teach. I was pretty sure that that's why, uh, what my scholarly father should have done anyway. So in, in a way, I guess, I, I, I thought that I was taking up his legacy by never getting into the preaching racket in the first place. Now, I've told you all of that before. And, it, 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 and I've said that when it came time to make an actual living as an actual grown-up, it finally dawned on me that I really didn't have any marketable skills. 
Instead, uh, my brief foray into assistant managership at a speedway in Detroit had proven that I needed what I would have generously and, and perhaps arrogantly called a, a, a more contemplative vocation. And I've told you that I had an epiphany when my wife finally got fed up with me going to school endlessly, she told me I was going to need to get a job. And that preaching, you know, preaching was really the only way I could think of to make a living. Now, I, I've told you all of that before. And, and all of it is true, both my rejection of the idea that being a minister would work for me and, and, and then my sort of grudging admission that I was probably doomed to do it anyway. But what I probably haven't told you is that my limited marketability as an employee wasn't the only thing that motivated me to enter ministry. I had other people influence my decision, leading me to reconsider the whole family business thing. When I attended an evangelical Bible college, I, I didn't major in preaching. Instead, I, I, I double majored in, in Lang New Testament, or excuse me, biblical languages in New Testament. I mean, the, you know, it was the whole teaching thing. But my Hebrew professor, who'd been one of my dad's friends uh, in seminary, interestingly enough, he stopped me in uh, the middle of a translation, translation of the book of Ruth after I'd made some irreverent aside or something. And he said, you know, I'm not sure ministry's gonna suit you. You seem to have to do everything the hard way, rebellious and sarcastic. I mean, you're going to find your professional life exceedingly difficult. <laughs> what does he know? And I thought, look, if anybody could pull that off, it'd be me. Now, not that I want to, of course, but if I did want to, I could. And after hearing that, <clears throat> I didn't really want to be a minister any more than I had, but I sure didn't want to be told that I couldn't be one. And then later in seminary, uh, we had to take the, I think I've told you before, we had to take the whole Myers-Briggs uh, personality inventory. Now, I, I'm aware of the fact that the Myers-Briggs test has come under some fire as a kind of academically dubious Facebook quiz to, to, to determine what kind of potato you are or which character from the Lord of the Rings speaks your love language. But at the time, it was all the rage. And my test scores came back, which meant that I had to have a conference uh, with one of my professors to interpret these test scores to me. I was an INTP which, for those uninitiated in Myers-Briggs Esperanto, means introverted, intuitive, thinking, perceiving. Here's one description. INTPs have a rich inner world and would rather focus their attention on their internal thoughts rather than the external world. They typically do not have a wide social circle but they do tend to be close to a select group of people. So here's what I was told 
by my professor. He said, uh, INTP is one of the rarest types of Myers-Briggs model. Now, see, I like that sort of, you know, different. <laughs> Only one to five percent of people fall under this designation. And in ministry, it's even rarer. Fewer than one percent of INTPs find ministry a workable vocation. And then my professor said, maybe being a minister really isn't for you. And if you go into this, it's going to be extraordinarily frustrating for you. Now, I mean, whether any of that is true, whether Myers-Briggs is a trustworthy personality test, I'm really not in a position to judge. But nevertheless, what I was, that's what I was told, and therefore that's what I believed for a long time. Face it, you're, you're probably better suited to being a night watchman at a mortuary than being a minister. Okay, I mean, fine. I didn't want to be a minister, but again, I mean, you know, don't tell me I can't handle it, that I won't be any good at it. Another time in seminary, <clears throat> I just preached my uh, senior sermon in chapel. Uh, it's something we all had to do. You know, I mean, the whole thing was kind of fun, actually. Um, I don't remember what I preached, to be honest. But, but what I remember uh, was telling some stories that I thought were funny. And, 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 you know, people laughed, and I liked that. In fact, I felt, you know, pretty preachery uh, following my chapel debut. And standing at the front afterwards, people came by telling me, how good they thought I'd done, you know, all that stuff. And so I, I was feeling pretty good about myself and my homiletical aptitude. But um, be, before I continue with the story, let, let me first interject that at the time, I, I looked pretty much <clears throat> the way I do now, which is to say, like, I just sort of wandered in off the set of Sons of Anarchy. But three things were different about me then. One, I was a really heavy smoker back then. Two, I regularly wore my, my old stained Cintas uniform shirts uh, with the patch that said Derek on the front, the, the uniform that I uh, used to wear uh, to rust-proof cars. And three, uh, I rode an actual motorcycle which, you know, just kind of completes the whole image. Anyway, as I stood there in line after my sermon, the president of the seminary came to me, now I think with an air of heightened expectation that I would soon be graduating and finally out of his hair. And the president shook my hand. He thanked me for my sermon, and he said, well, what's next for you, Derek? And I, you know, I'm still kind of full of adrenaline. I said, you know, I, uh, I've been thinking maybe I'd might become a, a minister. Uh, ah. That's what he said. He said, ah. As if he'd found safer ground. And perhaps, you know, maybe a bit too enthusiastically, he said, you mean youth minister? And I said, no, I, I'd, I'd like to preach. And he still had my hand in his, but he, but he, but he, he, he stopped sort of shaking it. And he leaned his head back and sort of looked me up and down. 
And finally he looked me in the eye and he said, huh. And he just turned around and walked away. <laughs> that's the truth. That is, that's the truth. And he was shaking his head. Now, look, as my buddy Bill says, I ain't better than anybody, but I sure ain't no worse, neither. All these people telling me I had no business being a minister. What do they know? Nobody can tell me I can't do that if I want to. I mean, I'm competitive, so, I mean, you know how that is. You, you tell somebody you can't do something. It's, it's often, almost perversely, it seems to me, the thing that motivates them to do it. And being a minister, for me, was not that different. But see, here's the thing. All that negativity got me thinking about shocking everybody and becoming a minister. Sure, but, 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 but what really got me thinking about it were the people, the friends and, and strangers, who came to me and told me that they thought I had a gift of sorts, that as strange and surprising as it sounded to them, you know, maybe I should consider the whole ministry thing. It always went something like this. Hey, Derek, have you ever thought about being a minister? And I'd say, well, you can't come from the family I come from without thinking about being a minister. Okay, well, you know, I think you, you know, you'd be pretty good at it. And I'd say, thanks. I mean, after all, I was brought up right, I, all appearances to the contrary notwithstanding. But inside, I'd be saying, oh, no, man, here we go again. Why can't people just leave me alone about this? But see, here's what I learned. Negativity and trauma aren't just episodes that happen, and then you're done with them. They're cumulative. They pile up inside you, often without you even being aware of it. Till one day, you, you, you look at this mound of garbage that seems to be blocking out the sun, and you realize you haven't escaped it. You, you just sort of try to put it in your soul's trash compactor and crush it down into nothing. But the thing is, when you do that, you don't make the stuff disappear like you think. You make it into hardened little fragments that pile up in your heart until one day you wake up and find that not only didn't you get rid of it all, you made it harder and even more durable. And now it won't leave. But... The flip side is that good stuff can pile up, too. Hanging on to the good things usually takes more effort. At least it does for me. But sometimes the good things make their own pile, and it sits in your heart waiting for just the right moment to come out. And it's, it's often a painful process, excavating these hidden treasures. I mean, often you don't know that this hidden mound of gold is even inside of you. In my case, I fought it. I didn't want to become a minister. I fought against it at every step of the way. But sometimes, something beautiful lives inside you, and no matter how hard you fight it, it still won't go away. It just sort of sets up housekeeping in your heart and refuses to move out. And if you're lucky, you realize that what you've been fighting all along isn't an enemy attack devised to make you feel uh, like uh, you're somebody else. Instead, it's the realization that what you've been fighting all along is who you really are. 
This is the issue that Jesus is addressing in our text today. Identity. Who we really are. Even amid all the fighting that we do against it. You are the salt of the earth, he says. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. Thrown out, trampled underfoot, you're the light of the world. City built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket. They put it on a lampstand. Gives light to everybody in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. I mean, it's easy enough, right? Your salt, your light. Now just be who you are. Remember, Jesus has just told us who we are a few short verses prior in the Beatitudes. Uh, we're the, the blessed, those who pursue justice, who make peace, who speak the truth. Again, it's easy, right? Well, all right, it's not easy. It's simple, but it's definitely not easy. But why is it not easy? Because sometimes you don't feel like being salt and light. Right? I mean, sometimes we fight who we really are. Whether it's the, the, the sort of black hole of trauma or the unexplored riches of people's positive views of us, we often fight against who we are. But see, here's the thing. The essence of light and salt isn't changed by its environment. Light is still light in the darkness. Salt is still salt, even if you throw it in water. Instead, salt and light change the nature of that to which they are applied. And salt doesn't have to try to be salt. Light doesn't have to try to shine. It is. And that's the point. Salt and light don't exist for themselves. Instead, their usefulness comes from being applied to other things. Salt and light are what they are no matter where, no matter what. And, and, and this is the crucial point to make for people whose purpose for existing requires them to live as agents of God's love. We are salt and light. We are who we are, not because the situation calls for it or because of how others treat us, but because... Through the eyes of God who created us, we're already everything we need to be because God made us that way. And through the eyes of an executed carpenter, we're able to see a vision of a new world that embraces us. All of who we are, garbage heap and unexcavated treasures, no matter how hard we fight it, we can't crush it out of existence, we can't run far away from it. And so consequently, we're often called to live in ways that, that the, just confound conventional wisdom and, and, and push us to embrace 
who we really are, even though to do so often feels like we're embracing failure. I mean, being salt and light has never been about being successful, about measuring up to somebody else's view of us. It's always been about being faithful. And if Jesus is the model, then faithfulness often can't help but look like failure. Right? But this new realm that Jesus points toward has, has never existed to invite people to be successful. Instead, the church has steadfastly maintained the unenviable claim that its sole purpose is to invite people to failure, or at least failure in the way that much of the world sees failure. I mean, we're dopey people who claim to take the side of the powerless against the powerful. To, to, to worry more about securing food, housing, and health care for the poor than in securing tax breaks for the wealthy. I mean, we're, we're, we're muddle-headed folks who see refugees not as terrorist threats, but as neighbors who are literally running for their lives. Who see Muslims not as our religious or political competitors, but as fellow seekers of God's peace and justice for the world, who see undocumented immigrants not as sponges who suck up our resources, but as families deserving of our hospitality and who bring energy and new ways of being into our midst. We're part of what Martin Luther King called the creatively maladjusted, those willing to live the lives that God sees in us, not the lives that we're trying to escape. We're those who see LGBTQ people as a gift to be celebrated, who see the disabled as having unique abilities that we could never know without them, who see the houseless as our neighbors and not as more trash to be cast aside. In a world where the beautiful, the, the, the influential, and the successful get all the attention, we followers of Jesus opt for what looks like failure by being called to love those whom others fear and hate. But you see, people who follow a criminal executed by the state can never get too caught up in what everybody else understands as success anyway. The new reign that Jesus announces, this realm that looks like heaven on earth, is upside down compared to our ordinary expectations about what we should want. As people who follow Jesus, we're salt and light not because we think we can get something out of it, but because as those who follow Jesus, that's who we've been told we are. We believe in absurd things like mercy and forgiveness, not because they work or because they get us what we want, but because we believe as a people who've been forgiven and shown mercy, we don't know any other way to be. 
The only reason we have for doing something as preposterous as forgiving those who harm us, for showing mercy to those who misuse us, is that we follow a man who, when nailed unjustly to a cross, could think of nothing more useful to say than, Father, forgive them. They got no idea what they're doing. Of course, it's not easy being salt and light. Sometimes we'd just rather be assistant managers at Speedway for a while. But followers of Jesus exist to live so as to enable those outside the church to get a clear picture of who God is and whom God loves. And God, the one we serve, the one we find through Jesus Christ, is the one who loves everybody. So, how do we do it? Right? I mean, how do we live like salt and light in a world where common sense often seems to be moving in the opposite direction? In which we always seem to be fighting who we really are. I don't know all the answers. I only know that no matter where, no matter what, no matter how hard we fight it, we're determined to live like Jesus. Even if it kills us. The Lord knows it killed him too. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.